Now, Elijah the Tishbite of Tishi and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord of God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain in these years except by my word. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Go from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the Wadi Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the Wadi, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the Wadi Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. The ravens brought him meat and bread in the morning, and meat and bread in the evening. And he drank from the wadi. But after a while, the wadi dried up because there was no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Go now to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and live there, for I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he set out for Zarephath. When he came to the gate of the town, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and said, Bring a a little water in a vessel that I may drink. So as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, And bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. But she said, As the Lord lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of meal in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I am now gathering a couple of sticks so that I may go home and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, Do not be afraid. Go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake and bring it to me, and afterwards make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, the jar of meal will not be emptied, and the jug of oil will not fail until the day that the Lord sends rain on the earth. She went and did as Elijah said, so that she, as well as he, and her household ate for many days. The jar of meal was not emptied, neither did the jug of oil fail, according to the word of the Lord, he spoke by Elijah. After this, the son of the woman, who was mistress of this house, became ill. His illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. She then said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son? But he said to her, Give me your son. He took him from her bosom, carried him up into the upper changer, chamber where he, Elijah, was lodging and laid him on his own bed. He cried out to the Lord, 
Oh my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I am staying by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried out to the Lord. Oh Lord, my God, let this child's life come into him again. The Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. The life of the child came into him again and he revived. Elijah took the child, brought him down from the upper chamber into the house, and gave him to his mother. Then Elijah said, See, your son is alive. So the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. The word of the Lord is truth. For the world. In the last two weeks, T and Rod have given us valuable insight and encouragement as we begin to negotiate this new normal in which we find ourselves. Their gifts have encouraged us, and I am grateful to them. I am also grateful that preaching is not a competitive sport. I'll let that one sink in a minute. There's really no need for me to back clean up, as Rod intimated last week, that there might be. So I'm going to just jump right in to this story. Are you familiar with the word liminality? Do you know what that word means? You heard it before? Liminality is an anthropological term which has been adopted by folks who study spirituality to describe the spiritual experience of waiting on God in transitional spaces precipitated by change. Does that sound familiar? Now, I put the accent on the spiritual experience because I think that's important for us to hear first off this morning. The word itself Liminality comes from the Latin word lemon, meaning threshold, a pregnant pause, a parenthesis, a crossroad. It's a place of not knowing. That moment when you turn from one chapter to the next in the novel you can't put down. The ever-shifting, never-exact, yet distinctly visible place where the sea meets the shore. A new day's dawn? When does it start? The twilight zone? The Lord's Prayer suggests liminality. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Liminality occurs in the space after Jesus' death and before Pentecost. The transfiguration moment is a snapshot of liminality when time seems to stand still. Celtic Christianity calls these moments thin places, where the veil between what is visible and material and what is invisible and spiritual grows thin. And we begin to understand that God's presence is always very near, just beyond the veil, over the next bridge, across the threshold. 
I find myself in a thin place every time I drive down the road to Kiowa Island on the way to my soul place. The live oak canopy creates a cathedral effect over the road. The light dapples down, sometimes so much that you can't even see. Silence falls. And I know God is very near then, even though I cannot explain it. Now, I choose that liminal space. But more often than not, liminality is forced on us. A death, a new baby, an emptying nest, a pastoral change. Whether chosen or imposed, liminal spaces precede new normals and hold varying degrees of disruption, disorientation, and loss of control over our well-ordered existence or loss of our illusions of control. They also offer possibility and transformation. Liminal space, Richard War says, is a unique spiritual position where human beings may hate to be, but where the biblical God is always leading them. It's when you have left the tried and true, but have not yet been able to replace it with anything else. It's when you are finally out of the way. It's when you are between your old comfort zone and any possible new answer. If you are not trained in how to hold anxiety, how to live with ambiguity, how to entrust and wait, you will run. Anything to flee the terrible cloud of unknowing. Now listen to his last sentence again. If you are not trained in how to hold anxiety, how to live with ambiguity, how to entrust and wait, you will run. Living in liminal space can be a frightening, insecure reality, taking every ounce of maturity we can muster just to stand and not turn tail and run to the nearest promise of security or certainty. How many of us really know how to hold anxiety, how to live with ambiguity, how to trust and wait? And yet this is exactly where we find ourselves this day and exactly the work to which we are called. The reality of liminality does not mean that we will automatically recognize that reality for what it is nor that we will be present to the rich potential for spiritual deepening that it holds. But what might we learn if we choose to be present in this liminal space, to do what Rohr suggests, to hold our anxiety at bay, to live with the ambiguity a while, to trust, to wait? I think Elijah and the widow of Zarephath have things to teach us about this. The first thing is that living in liminal space is not necessarily passive. This story unfolds in three scenes. Drought and wilderness, flight into enemy territory, and unexpected death. These scenes are full of purposeful activity. 
Elijah shows up unannounced to declare three years of drought to Israel's king Ahab, whose wife Jezebel worships the rain god Baal. Now, with this announcement, the stage is set for a showdown. Whose God is most powerful? My God can whip your God. And after this, God tells Elijah to hightail it out of there to a brook in the wilderness east of the Jordan River where there's water to drink and ravens that will feed him. And for a while, Elijah is cared for exactly as God says. But eventually, the drought moves inland. The brook dries up, and Elijah... Faced with death, if he stays there, is instructed to go about 80 to 100 miles west to Zarephath, which just happens to be Jezebel's hometown. The Bible doesn't tell you that piece. In other words, Elijah is to go back into enemy territory. What's more, he's to look for a widow who has been instructed by God to feed him. Now, in ancient Near Eastern society, widows, orphans, and strangers were the lowest on the social ladder, with widows being the ones on the very last rung, because there was no man to legitimate or provide for them. A widow with a son at least has a promise for a future provision, but in this story, the widow's son faces death. A clearer picture of destitution and hopelessness does not exist in scripture. The whole story is about insecurity inherent in life's liminality, how to face it, and the radical goodness of God's provision amid life's uncertainties. Living in liminal space is not a passive spectator sport. Elijah must pay close attention because God shows up everywhere. Elijah is constantly at some kind of threshold. A brook in the wilderness, a gate in an unsafe town, a struggle between life and death. He is consistently vulnerable and needy. Yet he recognizes that he is not alone, continually looks for evidence of God's presence and provision, and listens for God's next assignment. The questions to those of us living in liminal space are, are we paying attention to where and when God shows up? And how carefully are we listening for our next assignment? These threshold encounters are full of grace and mystery. The actions required in response don't always make sense. But Elijah seems to see God in each one and obeys even when what God says to do is dangerous. Elijah risked life and limb to confront political power on God's behalf. The wilderness is a threatening place, but Elijah goes into it at God's command. Obedient Elijah returns to enemy territory to find a widow who will support him. The Bible not only says love your enemies, but in this story it suggests we are to trust them to care for us. That's a horse of a different color, isn't it? Elijah then wrestles with God, insisting that life be restored to the widow's son, confronting even his own deity in the service of life over death. All of this runs counter to what makes rational sense. What is safe and secure? What prudence dictates? But Elijah trusts God not circumstances 
or prudence. And he obeys God even when it involves risks and threat. To wait, to listen, to trust when we cannot see the road ahead is counterintuitive activity, activity, useful in liminal time. Common sense tells us to grab a map, a flashlight, and grip the steering wheel more tightly in order to see the way. Everything we know in our heads says play it safe. Minimize the risk. Go by the book. But that's not God's way. God wants to show us abundance, not fear. And for that, we have to let go of our need for control. That's a vulnerable place, disorienting and uncomfortable, to stay there, to hold the anxiety that comes when we feel adrift and out of control. We have to trust, wait, and follow courageously. At every turn, Elijah trusts that God will provide. And at every point, God is faithful. God provides. By obeying, Elijah partners with God's providence, betting his life on God's ability to deliver whatever he or anyone else needs in the moment. If I could sing, I'd sing this for you, but Kyle Matthews has a chorus that goes like this. Wherever God guides, God provides. Wherever God leads, God gives us all we need. Wherever the road is turning, there is bread for the journey. Wherever God guides, God provides. That sounds simple, doesn't it? It's comforting. No, it's not. Because to trust God's provision means we have to follow wherever. Wilderness. Danger. Death. Go to a land I will show you. Therein lies the rub. Bruce Epperly suggests that the lesson here is clear. It's in your order of service. Willingness to trust God despite appearances opens us to new possibilities, new energies, and a greater sense of vocation. This is not denial of the harsh realities of life, but the recognition that these realities are not the whole story. Within the limitations of life, unexpected possibilities may emerge. God's providence brings possibilities where we only see limitations. Epperly affirms that liminal space requires radical trust, which can hold anxiety in check and allow openness to possibilities. As Elijah listens and trusts, he finds a growing sense of his vocation. But he has to get his hands dirty in the process. Ravens are unclean, yet he eats from them. When provisions run out, he heads back into enemy territory looking for a widow God says is supposed to support him. In so doing, he makes himself unclean by living with a non-Israelite, an enemy, an outcast. Later, he takes her dying son in his arms, rendering himself unclean by touching a dying body. He gets his hands dirty in order to stand with God on the side of life over death, rain over drought, daily bread over starvation, relationship over prejudice, fear, and marginalization. His words announce the prophetic good news that God 
that the God he serves is life giver, drought ender, abundance bringer. His actions prove his trust in that prophetic word. As he puts his life in the hands of ravens and widows and dares to demand that God bring life from what appears to be dead. From Elijah, we learn to trust, to listen, to serve, even if that means we get our hands dirty in the process. And as we do these things, we embody the good news of life over death. We cooperate with the radical goodness of God, and we stand to gain a greater sense of our vocation. But what of the widow? At Free For All this week, Herb observed, no one ever talks about the widow. What would it be like to take this passage from the widow's perspective? What can we learn from her? We can learn about courage. Not the absence of fear, but action despite the fear and anxiety we feel. Picture this scene. Elijah approaches her, Fresh from his wilderness sojourn, actually ripe might be a better description. How many of you men shave every day while you're on vacation? I can tell you my men don't. Bathing is questionable. I assume that's a man thing, so... Elijah probably looks like a wild man, his long, scraggly beard full of bird droppings and raw meat. (laughs) He's thirsty and hungry. Do not be afraid, he tells her. Realizing that this encounter with him must be frightening for her in many ways. She does not give in to her fear or her anxiety, and she has both. She does not run away. Instead, she courageously faces it, listens, and meets his need. God has told Elijah that this woman of Sidon has has been commanded to care for him. But the text gives no indication that the widow actually knows this herself. She is out of food. She is destitute by all societal measures and facing death. And yet when Elijah demands she make him bread with her last morsel, promising that his God will provide what they need to live each day, that the flour and oil won't run out, she trusts him and his God. Her God has obviously failed, so maybe she has nothing to lose. Maybe she's too tired or afraid to care anymore. Maybe she's resigned to her fate. We do not know why she acts. All we do know is how she acts. Holding her anxiety and self-preservation in check, she responds generously and immediately, giving all she has to this beggar without reservation. Is that a miracle any less potent than the daily flour and oil supply that follows? At Free For All, Glenda said, it's like she knew that a little bit shared is more than a lot hoarded. To which Josh responded, that says something about this widow. She's on the verge but still gives kindness to a stranger. She offers hospitality. Glenda responded, well, she's reluctant at first. And Josh said, aren't we all? 
And then Glenda said, this should encourage us. When we feel like we don't have much to offer compared to big churches or more learned people in our own church, this story can help us see what we do have to offer. And Ann said, we have a lot to offer relationally. And Josh said, ultimately, that's what the woman gives Elijah, relationship. It's what brings health and healing to this awful situation. Her selfless hospitality and honesty stretches her and helps everyone grow stronger. It was after that that I asked Josh to preach in September. He wasn't available today. Sometimes we are completely unaware of the amazing gifts God has put inside us to be offered freely and generously. And in this interim, we cannot hoard what we have. When we share, the jar is replenished and we grow healthier. This is already happening. It's no surprise. Stephanie and Kat have stepped up to care for our children while we look for elusive paid workers to replace those we've lost. James is giving his gifts and skills as a chaplain to help with emergency pastoral care. Terry has agreed to take up Michael's task of enlisting worship leaders, so everyone must say yes to her. <laughs> Many of you are preaching, teaching, praying, visiting our homebound, giving administrative leadership, gardening, for goodness sakes, painting. Busy folks with lots of responsibilities already. You are stepping up, offering what you can. And the fact is that our jar still needs more filling. We still need both volunteers and paid staff to teach and serve our children. We need folks to provide meals, to pray, to help with congregational care, to serve at the Joseph Center. So what will you offer? And how will you participate in God's providence at Providence? Josh is right. The most important thing we learn from this woman is that life in liminal space requires a willingness to be in relationship. When her son dies, she communicates honestly with Elijah, fostering community and compassion in him. She's honest with him about her guilt, her fear, her frustration, her doubt. Our first reaction to change, particularly if it's painful, is, what did I do to deserve this? And why did God do this to me? This woman is no different. But at every turn, she holds tenaciously to relationship with Elijah. She has lost everything she has, yet stands toe to toe and heart to heart with him in her pain and need. This relational tenacity calls him to a deep understanding of the God he serves and of his own ministry. He grows as he relates and responds to her. His own calling becomes clearer. His demand to be fed becomes a compassionate desire to save life. Is it any wonder that this widow is the one Jesus uses in Luke 4 as an example of faithfulness? This non-Israelite woman exhibits the kind of trust, hospitality, courage, and selfless relational commitment that characterizes the kingdom Jesus has come to establish. 
And he makes everybody mad in the process of telling them that. This story, at its core, is about the miraculous providence of God that surrounds us. Through the natural world, through unlikely people of through unlikely people who seem to have nothing to offer on the surface, and through a fledgling prophet who trusts and takes risks for obedience's sake. This story tells us that trust is what gets us through the dark and uncertain times, and trust is relational. We are partners with God and with each other in enacting God's providence. Mystery and miracle abound, but part of that mystery is God's people trusting God and showing up to offer what they have. This unleashes and embodies God's life-giving abundance. Even when we feel afraid, bereft, alone, on our last leg, confused, angry, frustrated, hopeless, left behind, we have gifts to share and gifts to receive. Folks, we stand on the threshold of a new beginning. A wash in liminal space. The way ahead of us is not charted. We have choices we must make along the way, none of which are clear. How will we proceed? Will we rush headlong into decisions demanding speed and efficiency? Will we flake out, hoard our gifts, waiting to see what happens here and whether a new pastor is to our liking? Will we give in to fear? Resist change and hold on to the way we've always done it here? Or will we take the lessons we're given in Scripture over and over again as God's people grapple with the liminality through which God is always leading them? These imperfect, fearful, yet faithful people call us to trust in a God we cannot see, to provide exactly what we need when we need it. They reveal a God who uses imperfect, unlikely people to do his work. They show up, stay invested, offer what they have, meager though it seems, for the good of the community. They stay in relationship when the going gets tough, speaking truthfully about fears, doubts, and needs, and listening carefully to God and to each other. They act with compassion. They risk getting their hands dirty in obedience to God's call to go and to serve. They pay attention to the God who is everywhere in every person, providing, challenging, feeding, sustaining. They remind us that in liminal times or at full clarity and effectiveness, the God we serve is with us always, resisting marginalization, Standing on the side of abundance, refusing to give death and loss the final word, ever. Thanks, Peter.